Inside Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Let's head for California's Mojave Desert and the busy hangar where Virgin Spaceship Unity is getting ready to rocket into space. Bill Nye is marking a significant achievement in efforts to protect humanity from space-borne Armageddon. On our weekly What's Up segment, Bruce Betts will mark what would have been Carl Sagan's 82nd birthday. Just before we present another space trivia contest, we begin, as we should, by visiting with the Planetary Society's senior editor, Emily Lakdawalla. Emily, we're a bit late getting to it, but still plenty to look forward to in this month. In your uh, What's Up in the Solar System for November of 2016, let's start with Cassini, which uh, you say is having a big, big month. It really is. Cassini is now circling Saturn. To me, it feels a bit like circling the drain, but we're not quite there yet. <laughs> but it is going around really fast, like once every eight or nine days. It's fast for Cassini because that means it's quite close to Saturn. And the reason they've got so close is because they are just about at the end of the month to do this major Titan flyby that will abruptly shift its periapsis, the closest point to Saturn on its orbit, way closer to Saturn than it's been before. They're actually, right now, the periapsis is close to Titan. They're going to jump over all the rings, the E, F, I'm sorry, the E and G rings, to right outside the F ring, which is right outside the main ring system. So they're going to be going in between the G and F rings for 20 orbits. It's going to be fabulous close-up views of Saturn's rings and a whole new phase of the mission. Very exciting stuff. How about jumping one planet inward to uh, Juno, circling Jupiter? Yeah, so the news from Juno is not quite as good. Uh, They um, had to skip their orbit burn to to shorten their orbit to two weeks, and they also didn't get to do science in the last periapsis. And it now sounds like they're going to stay in this long 53-and-a-half-day orbit for quite some time while they try to figure out what's going on with their thruster system. Mm. Now, Juno can still keep doing um, science on each periapsis. It's just that the science is going to happen a lot slower. To me, the most unfortunate thing about it is that with uh, Cassini going into this special orbit that's very close to the planet, Cassini's orbit and Juno's orbit were going to look very much the same at the same time, and they were going to be able to do the same kind of science at two giant planets with the same sun having the same activity at the same time. And the longer that Juno stays in this really long orbit, the uh, less overlap the two great missions get studying the giant planets in the same way. So that's a little little bit sad. That's a shame, yeah, but uh, still both doing good science. In the time we have left, you've got so many other items here in this uh, November 1st review of what's coming up this month, or in some cases, what's already happened. There's ExoMars, the trace gas orbiter. Yes, they're going to get two precious science orbits, turning on all their instruments and studying Mars the way they want to before they have to shut them all off to spend about a year aerobraking into their final circular Mars orbit. But they'll get a nice taste of science on two orbits this month, including some Phobos imaging, which I'm looking forward to. And finally, from our colleague Jason Davis, uh, the Long March 5, a big rocket, made it out of China. Yes, and that is a really big deal. That rocket is as powerful as a Delta IV Heavy. It will be able to get China to its lunar sample return plans and eventually to launch big components for space stations. So that's an important milestone for the Chinese space program. And should anybody be curious about where everything is in the solar system, you've once again included that uh, updated map from uh, Olaf uh, Frun, is it? 
That's close enough. <laughs> All right. Anyway, it is in the November 1st uh, update from Emily. And there's another post just about Juno that has an update to that Marble movie as the spacecraft approach the uh, king of planets in our solar system. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Matt. She is our senior editor and planetary evangelist for the Planetary Society, also a contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. The boss, the CEO of the Planetary Society is Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, we note this week that NASA announces the that it has reached a, a milestone of sorts, a, a kilometer marker. Yeah, we love kilometer markers, but in this case, we need 15,000 of them. We believe we found the 15,000th asteroid that's near the Earth. This is the kind of thing that is important uh, because of what we discovered about the ancient dinosaurs. You do not want to get hit by an asteroid, even a small one. It certainly indicates a lot of progress, and and this includes even fairly small asteroids, ones that might not even make it down to the surface, plus those uh, planet-killing ones. Yeah, well, I like to think of them as city-killing, county-killing, country-killing, continent-killing, and then everything that you've ever known killing asteroids. So uh, they're important to find, as I like to joke, as we like to joke, there is no evidence that the ancient dinosaurs had a space program. <laughs> and so, uh, so if they did, they were unsuccessful. But we could be the first generation of people that is ready to deflect one of these things. And the key is to find it early. And by early, they mean 20 years, 20 years before it would not only cross the Earth's orbit, but hit the Earth. So it's a, it's a very important work. It's not something you, um, you stop doing everything else and address. It's something that you as a civilization just constantly work on, constantly keep it going, as, counting asteroids, determining their orbital paths, and in the, kind of getting ready with a big rocket to go out there and give it a nudge, give it a little nudge. Clearly, FEMA and NASA are taking this seriously because they're practicing for the, yeah. the worst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're really revving it up to be ready to evacuate people from a small, let's call it, let's call it a city-sized killer. What did you call it? A city killer asteroid. Yeah. That would be really good to be ready for something like that. Even better, it would be ready to deflect it, give it yeah. a nudge. Well, we need that 20-year warning that you were talking about. Yeah, that's right. And the, we can do it, though. Finding the 15,000th one is significant. It means the, the effort's going along. It's something that we should all be proud of. It's a good use of our intellect and treasure. And uh, something that is central to the Planetary Society mission. Ah, oh, yes, it is indeed. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you, Bill. Let's change the worlds. He's Bill Nye, the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill Nye, the science guy, that is. On now to the Mojave Desert and uh, me getting to stick my head inside Spaceship Two. Yeah, it was thrilling. Wow, really? Yep. <laughs> The Mojave Desert is where scores of experimental aircraft have taken flight, a few spacecraft too, including the space shuttle. Out on a corner of the Mojave Air and Spaceport is a nearly new hangar that belongs to the Spaceship Company, the now wholly owned division of Virgin Galactic, charged with building and testing the White Knight II motherships that will take Spaceship Two rocket planes to their launch altitude of about 15,000 meters or 50,000 feet. From there, Spaceship Two will carry its pilots and astronaut clients beyond the edge of space. 
I parked in front of the huge and poetically named facility in early October. I am in the reception area of Faith that belongs to the Spaceship Company with one of the guys in charge here, Enrico Palermo, who is the Executive VP and General Manager. Did I get that right? Yeah, welcome, Matt. Welcome to Faith. So Faith is uh, really our home for the Spaceship Company uh, operations here in Mojave. It stands for Final Assembly Integration and Test Hangar. And and based on that name, you can kind of guess what we're going to see when we head out to the shop floor. And I can't wait. I'm thrilled. It's been a it's been a good long while. One of the better acronyms, though, uh, NASA should be taking acronym training from you guys. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, uh, we're not great. There are a couple of other buildings are like Building 79, Building 4, so we need we need to up our game on some of our other buildings. Yeah, but this is where a lot of the magic happens. It uh, is. This is this is where we rolled out Spaceship early this year, and it's where we're conducting flight tests from. Lead on. Yeah, I'll just uh, tag along. So this was a, a hangar that was you know, purpose-built for our program. We sized it for uh, parallel build and assembly of two of our motherships, the White Knight 2, and uh, up to three of our, our spaceships. Um, right now, you'll see one White Knight 2 and one spaceship and a lot of other activity uh, reflecting sort of where the, where the program's at. But uh, we're excited that we've actually started um, the next spaceship, but it's in fabrication in another build and hasn't come into an assembly phases yet. Oh, my God. Yeah, we, we call this the O... S corridor. You come out and, and you see uh, both vehicles. So uh, to our right is uh, Virgin Mothership Eve, the, the 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 launch vehicle, which I think you've seen in the past, Matt. And then uh, Virgin Spaceship Unity. This is the uh, spaceship that is in flight test now. Uh, we started last uh, last month. The first vehicle that the spaceship company has has built and assembled. All right, I'm waiting for my goosebumps to go down. Yeah, yeah it's, uh. it's, it's it's pretty neat. And yeah, let's go for a walk and have a look. We uh, have restarted tours for our future astronauts from around the world. And so we uh, take Polaroid photos of them um, and, and put them on uh, a map of the world. And, and it's, it's a nice connection. It reminds our team that we are building the spaceships uh, for these remarkable individuals. About 700 from around the world, 58 countries have, have signed up to fly on Spaceship Two. I've met a lot of these people. Uh, and other than being incredibly envious of them, I'm so impressed with their enthusiasm. They can't wait. Yeah, you know, they're really, they are part of our program. They're not just a customer. Many have signed up because they realize what is happening in, 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 at VG and, and TSC. And, and New Space generally is, is this interesting pivot, I think, in, in humanity's history. And they really want to be at the, at the, at the start of it. So they've signed their, their Polaroids here, and I'm just looking at the one from Carl that says, I'm probably going naked. I don't know if that'll be against VG rules. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's typical of astronaut Carl. It, it would be against current rules, but you never know. <laughs> All right, should we yeah, head over this go. way? So we'll go around the back, uh, and then we'll uh, just check in with the crew chiefs, because the vehicles are in active uh, sort of flight operations, so, uh, various maintenance things. So we're hoping to get uh, spaceship in the air for glide flight as soon as we can. So much like the scaled flight test program of the first spaceship two, it's an incremental expansion of the flight envelope. So we start with Captive Carry, which we did uh, in September, moving to a series of glide flights where we incrementally expand the speed subsonic envelope and then press into into powered flights so let me congratulate you on that september 8th very successful captured flight yeah thank you it was it was a, a huge uh, emotional milestone for the team to get back to flight test a great thing at the end of many years of work so you know it's it's taken us a while to build virgin spaceship unity but at the same time we had to build this company the spaceship company didn't exist until several years ago so uh, in parallel to building the first spaceship we built the company and so uh, getting to flight was sort of a combination of many years of hard work for, for the, from the from the whole team 
you got a huge space here, and a lot of it is taken up by what appear to be engineering workstations. Yeah, one of the things we focus on that we, we think is critical for communication and, and ultimately safety of the product is having the engineering engineers and the program management on the shop floor uh, with the technicians that are assembling and integrating the vehicles. Um, so here we, we're looking at the team that is responsible for essentially verification, substantiation of the design, preparation for flight test, uh, modifications. Eventually it'll start to shrink as we move a lot of this team to the next two spaceships, but this is also the you know, flight test team, so many of these individuals sit in mission control during flight test. How many people do you have out here in the Mojave right now? So the spaceship company uh, is uh, roughly 350 employees um, at, as the sort of the manufacturing part of Virgin Galactic. And then Virgin Galactic Operations, which is ultimately the team that will mostly transplant to New Mexico at Spaceport America, uh, is about 90. So about 450 here in Mojave campus. So we're now probably the second largest employer in the airport after scale composites. It's a very new kind of division for Virgin. It is. You know, I, I think, you know, manufacturing itself is not something Virgin has done done traditionally, but what Virgin has done traditionally is enter markets, establish markets, and sort of look at ways to do business better and, and, and do it differently um, with, with an objective of uh, really delivering our customer services above and beyond uh, whatever else is the marketplace. And I think we have an opportunity both on the Launcher 1 program and the Spaceship 2 program to, to deliver a same kind of approach to customer service and, and value for the customer. So we have a pretty cool office at the Planetary Society, a lot of cool space props. We don't have any winged spacecraft. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, so I actually sit on the shop floor, so the desk you look at, myself and the president, Doug Shane, of the spaceship company, we're on the shop floor. Um, and yeah, rather than sit in an office, I, I pull my head up and there's a spaceship there, so it's pretty neat. And this is the new model. I mean, we're not talking about the grand old companies of aerospace where, I mean, I've been through it. You have to go through a whole bunch of layers to get up to the people at your level, Doug Shane's level. Yeah, that's right. Very approachable. D Doug has a good joke that we abandoned our open door policy. We got rid of the walls. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, it, it works out well. It means we can have, uh, anyone can come to us at any time and, and chat and, and vice versa. So are we going any further yeah, than this? Yeah, we're going to go further. Let's go check with the crew chief. Okay. I can follow you in here. Chat. Can we go around the front of White Knight 2? Great. So, Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. You've seen uh, White Knight 2 before, but uh, we took delivery of Eve, which is the name of this uh, first mothership after Rich's mother, from uh, uh, Scale Composites. Uh, we've been operating it for a couple of years now. Really, we just continue to evolve it. This is our first stage that has flown over 210 times in, in various missions. So we continue to optimize it for commercial service. Right now, we're, we're uh, just doing some inspections and preparing it for the next flight. There is a woman up there right above the center of this beautiful aircraft who's got her head halfway down into sort of a cowl there. Yeah, that's right. That is Courtney. Courtney's one of our uh, AMP mechanics on the Virgin Galactic Ops team. And, and yeah, we're doing, uh, I think, three flight inspections that are part of the sort of preventive maintenance plan on, on the vehicle. You look at an aircraft like this, and if you're into aviation at all, you think Bert Rutan. Mm -hmm. What's the relationship now with scaled composites? The program is now run by Virgin Galactic and the Spaceship Company. So uh, both Spaceship 2 and White Knight 2, uh, the design, the engineering, of the base models was developed by Scaled and so they're under contract with the spaceship company in fact to, to deliver these vehicles and then now we're essentially have, have got through the phase at the planned phase of transitioning all the intellectual property and know-how for designing and building and testing these vehicles and we essentially do that uh, all in-house and that's one of the primary reasons we are in Mojave is we had to facilitate that knowledge transfer as well as you know Mojave's and the whole Antelope Valley is, is sort of a, a proven crucible for sort of aerospace design and development. 
I'll say, yeah, all the uh, interesting neighbors you have here. Yes, we do. Yeah. All right, let's go look at Unity. So uh, Unity is our, is our pride and joy. Uh, so we unveiled her to the world in February this year. Uh, it was in this hangar. So if you've seen footage from that, Event, Wish I'd been here. You wouldn't believe it. Yeah, it was, uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough to be towing the Land Rover oh. with uh, Richard next to me sort of waving to the crowds. So that, was, that, was, that was a real buzz. And the vehicle's in essentially modification for the next flight. So the next flight is intended to be uh, a glide flight. You can see the vehicle. It actually came on a good day, Matt. Uh, I'm sorry, let me stop you. Yes. A glide, you're going to release that's Unity next time? Yep, that's the plan. So wow. unless, you know, the, the, the first captive carry flight was uh, very successful. It was a long flight, three hours 45, and yeah. so we had a very uh, detailed test card. Um, but, you know, we haven't gone through final flight readiness reviews. That's, that's the plan uh, for, for the next flight. But you've arrived on a unique day. The vehicle's feathered, so you can actually see what the vehicle looks like in its uh, feathered configuration for re-entry. Um, and so this is a remarkable vehicle that, you know, flies at uh, you know two to three times the speed of sound but also you know has to fold in half as part of its uh, re-entry into the atmosphere. And I remember hearing Bert Rutan talk about how this came to him he like sat up in bed one night and realized hey this is a way to get stuff back from space yeah. without overcomplicating things. Uh, could you just describe, I mean, most of our audience probably knows what we're looking at right now, but just in case. Yeah, that's, it was certainly sort of a, a eureka moment. So traditionally there's been two ways to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and re-entry is, is typically one of the riskier parts of a, a it's either that or launch or some of the riskiest parts of a, of a mission. And uh, Bert had actually lost a friend uh, on, on, on the X-15, which, you know, to, to he wanted to develop a spaceship, really had to solve how are we going to solve this problem of re-entry. And traditionally, there's been two main forms of re-entry. One is a capsule-type re-entry, very uh, stable configuration, you know, very predictable. Uh, still employed today, and it's a very successful model. The difficulty is you, you've got to land with parachutes, and you generally don't land back where you took off from. You land in the desert or so somewhere remote, and you need systems to augment the landing. The alternative is a space plane, like the Space Shuttle or the X-15. Uh, the beauty of those is you have wings, so you can navigate in the airfield and you can navigate to a runway, which, you know, for us, for the, the versatility of, of wings is required for sort of a high flight, high flight operation, mm -hmm. and I think ultimately ties us into to methods for sort of point-to-point -point travel. And so wings are very important to us, but wings traditionally for re-entry, you have to very accurately control the attitude of the vehicle, otherwise you risk burning up and re-entry. And so what the feather system does is, is take the the, um, the stable um, high drag characteristics of, of a capture re-entry and sort of merges it with the, the versatility of a, of a wing spacecraft. And so sort of the best of both worlds is, is sort of the architecture. That That's the phrase I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much more going on here. I mean, it's buzzing with activity, but there's so much technology in this. I remember when I was last out here with the boss, Bill Nye, and a bunch of other people, there were things we couldn't look at, or at least we weren't supposed to photograph, uh, because they were composite materials. And there's a lot of high-tech material science in this, isn't there? There is. So both the, the mothership and the spaceship are 100% carbon fiber structure. There's some other metals here and there, but uh, generally... But even the airframe. The airframe. The airframe is, is all composite. Mm -hmm. and, and in many, world, many respects, we're leading the world in terms of taking... Uh, aircraft this large, you know, White Natura's 140-foot wingspan into commercial service all carbon fiber. Um, and so, you know, we can leverage obviously the, the great talent that was developed at scale composites over the year and continually refine it in the spaceships we're building here at the spaceship company. There is a tank right in front of us here with obviously the uh, leading edge of this wing has been removed. What are we looking at? 
you're in fact looking at two tanks there's a, a protective cover on them just to protect them while the leading edge is off these are the uh, pneumatic tanks so um, a spaceship in many ways is, is pneumatically powered for many of its systems one of the core functions obviously is you know uh, environmental control system both the primary and a backup emergency environmental control system the feather is pneumatically controlled so mm. we get uh, air pressure from the pneumatics and also the reaction control system and a few other things used uh, than you know the, the potential energy stored in those bottles. You mentioned the X-15. You've got a reaction control system because, and so does Space Shuttle, because you're going to be in space. You can't use uh, uh, tails and ailerons. Yeah, that's right. Once once we're out of the atmosphere, the the control surfaces are, don't have any any value because there's no there's no uh, air pressure for them to react against. So we can go a bit closer. Uh, they're, they're covered up for, for FOD protection, but um, this is where the oh yeah uh, you can see a couple of the, the nozzles on the uh, the wing tips, and so these here are to control roll of the vehicle. So if you shoot these ones up, you're going to roll roll to the left, uh, for example, and then on the nose you can see where we control. But can I just say again, yeah, yeah. so cool. Yeah, it is. It is neat. So again, you can see the nozzles here; they're on top as well, so that allows us to control pitch and yaw of the vehicle. Yeah, very much as you see the yeah. little openings all over the space shuttle. That's right. That's right. And it's, yeah, again, one of the the beauties of the architecture is we don't have another gas system to control our react for our reaction control system. We're using the same compressed air to to run the reaction control system. That's Enrico Palermo of the Spaceship Company. We'll continue our tour of the Virgin Galactic Division in a minute when we'll stick our heads inside Virgin Spaceship Unity. Great photos are on this week's show page at planetary.org radio. This is Planetary Radio. Hello, I'm Robert Picardo, Planetary Society board member and now the host of the Society's Planetary Post video newsletter. There's a new edition every month. We've already gone behind the scenes at JPL, partied at Yuri's Night, and visited with CEO Bill Nye. We've also got the month's top headlines from around the solar system. You can sign up at planetary.org forward slash connect. When you do, you'll be among the first to see each new show. I hope you'll join us. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Whitney. We've been building a youth education program here at the Planetary Society. We want to get space science in all classrooms to engage young people around the world in science learning. But Kate, are you a science teacher? No. Are you? Nope. We're going to need help. We want to involve teachers and education experts from the beginning to make sure that what we produce is useful in your classroom. As a first step, we're building the STEAM team. That's science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So teachers, to learn more about how you can help guide this effort, check out planetary.org slash STEAM team. That's planetary.org slash STEAM team. And help us spread the word. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're in the Mojave Desert inside a gigantic hangar called Faith. It belongs to the Spaceship Company, a division of Virgin Galactic that was founded by Bert Rutan of Scaled Composites and the leader of the Virgin Group, Richard Branson. It now belongs entirely to Virgin Galactic, which is making history by building Spaceship Two there. Enrico Palermo is TSC's Executive Vice President and General Manager. We had moved just before the break from EVE, the White Knight Two mothership, to VSS Unity, the second Spaceship Two. Okay, here's the big question of the day. There's an open hatch there. Can I stick yeah. my head through there? Uh, let me check first, see what's going on. <laughs> probably can. Go ahead. Okay, here it goes. Don't mind me. All right, we're looking inside VSS Unity now, and there is the functioning instrument panel 
all glass, of course, as they say, all digital instrumentation, with three big screens and a whole bunch of other stuff that, uh, you know, my pilot brother and others, I'm sure, would recognize. Is that instrument panel, does it have a lot in common with what you'd find in an airplane like White Knight 2? Yeah, actually, White Knight 2 is the exact same instrument panels. They were developed for the whole system. Um, and that's one of the beauties of White Knight 2 is in many respects, uh, it was the it is the airborne, it is the wind tunnel, it is the engineering test bed for spaceships. So where it makes sense, you're going to find commonality between systems of the mothership and the spaceship. So clearly there's manufacturing benefits from that, but there's also training benefits and qualification benefits. Um, so the flight displays you see here are custom for our vehicle. But in terms of you know your typical, uh, many of the features that you'd expect on a typical MFD, multifunction display, however, we have things such as energy management embedded into ours for the for the glide and re-entry of spaceships. So the actual symbology and what the pilot sees is customized to the flight profile. People often notice is why isn't there a wheel at the front of spaceship? So uh, there's a skid. There's a skid. Yeah. So skids have been you know we're not the first uh, certainly to. So use a skid, but the reason... X-15, X-15 once again. Yeah, I mean, the reality is spaceship doesn't have to take off. It is launched, uh, it doesn't have to taxi and take off on a runway like a normal aircraft. Yeah. And so the only thing it has to do on the runway is land. And so the skid has, has several benefits. One, we get a lot of brake energy out of abrading that skid as we go down the runway. Two, if you look at how you could package this, it really packages into a, a long strip that's only a few inches wide. So very high good packing density. Uh, we also don't have another pressure vessel in a tire at the front of the vehicle which is another risk yeah. um, and, and we don't you know we can steer on the ground with uh, differential braking and all things during landing so it's 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 simple it's lightweight packages well doesn't have a, a tire at the front of the vehicle. How about the business end at the back the rocket engine? Yeah it's not you won't see it in the moment because uh, you know we're starting with uh, the, the captive carrying and glide flight test program uh, but the vehicle is powered by what we call a hybrid rocket motor and, and a hybrid really is a we use a liquid oxidizer in nitrous oxide and a, and a solid fuel and essentially in a cartridge mm -hmm. uh, it's a rubber based fuel and the beauty of the hybrid is it's very simple architecture the only moving piece in our in our whole uh, rocket propulsion system is the valve the main valve and it's either opened or closed we don't throttle uh, during flight from a system safety design perspective, it's you know it's, it's very simple to, to design that architecture. From an abort perspective, all we have to do is close that valve, and we can we can glide to a landing at any point in in the in the rocket profile. It's not like with a, a vertical launcher, you've got to ride that rocket for a certain amount of time, or you've got to blast off and escape. You know an event. We just have to shut our motor down, and uh, the vehicle can glide back glide back to back to Earth. So in a way. Again, the best of both worlds, the best of both liquid and solid rocket technology. You mentioned that rubber-like propellant. That's kind of a circling back, isn't it? Didn't you? It started with that, left it, and now we're back to that. Yeah, I mean, architecture-wise, we, we've the, the architecture is the same. Just the different fuel will give you different uh, performance parameters. The first three powered flights of Spaceship 2 did use a, a rubber-based fuel, and then the, the fourth flight of uh, Spaceship 2 was using a, a different fuel formulation. Parallel to that, the spaceship company had started bringing that in-house as well, because ultimately that was the plan for all that to come over to TSC. And so we didn't change uh, the the motor for any particular reason. There was sort of two development paths, but we felt that the rubber path was probably the longer-term thing which would suit us for commercial service. So right now, as you said, just a big opening there. There's no rocket engine. Yeah, but and, and the, and the uh, tail cone is missing as well, so we've got the tail cone currently off. Yeah. But there's going to be, hopefully before too long, another rocket engine on there. If everything goes well, how far off do you think we are from power, a return to powered flight? 
Yeah, you know, we're, we're keeping our, our cards pretty close to our chest there, Matt, on, on that. And that's because, you know, ultimately we're driven by safety. We, we want to be careful of putting a date out there and then being measured against it and maybe not making the right decisions uh, programmatically. So, um, you know, we want to get there certainly as quickly as we can, but the priority is to, is to get there safely. We have the advantage that we can leverage a lot of the flight test data from the SCALE program um, and all the expertise there to maybe accelerate our flight test program. But, you know, this is a new vehicle and, and, and is a flight test development vehicle as well. Beautiful paint job. Yeah, they, we did an awesome job. So the, the silver you see on the inside of the booms, we, we put that there for, for technical reasons, and we liked it so much that we sort of wrapped it around the other side because it looks, looks neat. So, it is cool, yeah. yeah. We're just off the shop floor now. There's a little conference room. I bet this is kept really busy. Yeah, we, I'm surprised we got it, actually. It's a, it's a busy time. I said we're, we're, we're actively in flight test. We're preparing the operations to commercial service, and we are starting the, the next spaceship as well. I was out at what was then still Rockwell, not too long after we lost the Challenger space shuttle. And I was talking with the guy who was in charge of fixing things, making things right. And what became very clear is that the space shuttle built after that time was a different vehicle. I mean, it looked the same, but there was an opportunity to do so many things that, you know, tragically the accident kind of forced them to do, but they went even beyond that. Is any of that true with VSS Unity? What I'd say is, is fundamentally the concept of operations, the outer mold line, the, the base design hasn't, hasn't changed significantly. What's changed in, in light of the accident, uh, well, two things have changed. Change, changes in light of the accident and, and sort of separate to that, changes in light of us having the chance to build another one. Clearly, we've made improvements to the, the controls with respect to the feather, uh, making sure the thing that happened on uh, PFF4 won't, won't happen again. So we have a mechanical inhibit in place uh, in, in respect to that. I think we've, we've talked about that publicly uh, to date. But we did really take a step back and look at the human interface in general and where are there other opportunities or risks that we need to protect against. I think overall, we have a much more robust design as a result of the accident. Um, so it wasn't just we tackled the issue that happened on um, PFF4. Four just made us make sure it was you know we looked under every every stone and saw if there's anything else we need to go go address. The other changes we see in Unity more come from the fact that we have the benefit that we're building the vehicle the second time, so we can take all the lessons learned from the build of Enterprise uh, into the build. We did take into the build of Unity, so uh, where we've seen opportunities to maybe optimize structure or get things in the final place the first time, we, we've done that. So externally to the vehicle, you're not going to see that. Um, it's really in the innards, but but uh, fundamentally, the, the base design hasn't changed and the concept of operations hasn't changed. The only thing you'll see externally is we have bigger horizontal stabilizers uh, on the vehicle. They're about 10% bigger uh, by area, and that's just to give us a little more alpha uh, envelope for, for commercial service. But basically, the concept, what we see out there, this aircraft, excuse me, spacecraft, yes. it's a concept, it's a design that you guys, Virgin Galactic, uh, stand by and feel this is going to be the successful way for us to get a whole lot of people into space. We did, and you know, certainly Richard and, and, and the board had to you know, review that decision after the accident. It was an unfortunate day, clearly, um, and, and a tragic day, but uh, we were fortunate that there was a lot of telemetry from the flight, so we very quickly could ascertain the likely what happened in that flight and, and I think the speed of the uh, NTSB investigation also showed that when you have that amount of data it's it's easy to 
to draw conclusions that enable us think, you know, fundamentally we, we believe in the concept operations and the design of the vehicle, but there's areas we need to improve and we've, we've gone and, and tackled those. And apparently, from what I've heard George Whiteside say, CEO of Virgin Galactic, the vast majority of the people who've paid you money for a ride on that spaceship out there, they're very happy with this. They still are raring to go. Yeah, they are. People may think that we, we lost a lot of customers after the, the accident. We didn't. And I think that was a reflection that, that people know this is a flight test development program. However tragic the event was, they still saw that you know where we were going was, was, was the right model. Um, and and they're, they're, you know, we've got an amazing uh, bunch of future astronauts around the world. I, I'm, I'm uh, one of the lucky ones that hosts them when they're in Mojave on these monthly tours. And, and, and certainly, you know, you get constant feedback of, look, keep going. And, you know, some of them don't mind. You know, they want to make, sh- make sure it's safe before they fly. So they're like, get it right before you put me on the spaceship. Of course. Yeah, that's certainly what I would be yep. saying. Talk about the experience they're going to have. This is something we've talked with George about in the past, but it's worth repeating. Yeah, I mean, the, the experience goes well beyond just a space flight. Uh, it really starts the, the moment you sign up for a flight with, with Virgin Galactic. But sort of core to the, the flight experience, uh, you'll be in, in New Mexico for three to four days. And New Mexico is uh, where Spaceport America is located and it'll be our initial uh, operating headquarters. Um, and during those three to four days, you're really going to be focused on uh, the training and, and preparation for flight. You're, you're not just a, a passenger on the vehicle. You're part of the crew. Choreographing and planning with your crew members how you're going to execute your mission to space is, is critical. Obviously, there'll be safety training, uh, fitting out your flight suit, probably some high G exposure, things like that um, mm. in those days leading up final medical checks. And, and, and then you will uh, take your, your flight to space. High G? You're going to have a centrifuge there? Uh, work in progress. I, I don't think we'll have, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting outside my area of uh, influence here. I really work on, on the manufacturing. I don't want to get you in trouble. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean... Uh, there will be some way to, to give some people exposure to um, high G, and it's not that the G on, on the vehicle is, is that that high that it's it's not sustainable. Just so we really want our future astronauts, our astronauts uh, when they fly, to know what's coming so they can really maximise the experience of their flight. How much time in microgravity? So it's three to four minutes of microgravity, um, and, and so microgravity starts basically at the end of rocket motor cutout until you start re-enter the atmosphere, so sort of the top of the, I guess, it's not really the probe, but the top of the, the arc uh, into space. They'll be able to release their seatbelts and float around a little bit uh, before they have to jump back into their seats? Yeah, that's the plan. It certainly will be the option. Um, you know, we're not going to force people that they have to get out of their seat, but I don't think there'll be many of the... You couldn't keep me in it. Uh, so. uh, me either. No, that that is the intent. And and in many respects, why we scaled up from a spaceship one to spaceship two, uh, Richard and, 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 and the leaders of Galactic at the time felt it was essential to the product that the individuals could get out of their seat and experience uh, microgravity. Here's another related question. Other than going up on the greatest joyride in the history of humanity, I know there's been a lot of talk, I think I've heard George Whitesides talk about this, that some of the future of this may be in point-to-point travel. Virgin is obviously best known as an airline. Yeah, certainly Richard has expressed an aspiration for, for point-to-point travel somewhere in, the, in, the, in our development path. I mean, that is an incredibly difficult technical challenge to solve. But I think in many respects, what we're doing with uh, Spaceship Two are stepping stones, right? We're learning how to um, fly the average, the average populace at high G into space. 
Uh, we are learning how to integrate these vehicles into the national airspace. Uh, we're working through the regulatory things to make this happen. So I think all of those are stepping stones to a, to a point to point, but certainly there's, there's advances still required in, in propulsion and, and thermal protection and, and structures to, to get there. But I, you know, I don't think it's impossible, but it's not, it's not a tomorrow thing either. But uh, it's certainly something Richard has, has aspired and inspired us to look towards. I've never talked to anybody in this business, including the government side of it, who ha- wouldn't agree with the fact that this is a long, hard road. Space is hard. Steady progress, and you're pleased with the progress? This program uh, has taken a good number of years, and I think that, yeah, it is, it is hard. Um, I've, I've uh, been in the program for several years now, and I uh, know we've got an incredible team that, that's uh, working really hard and, and, and are fully motivated towards the vision. We're doing this uh, not for just test pilots. We're doing it for flights for you and me and, and ultimately our children. So uh, I, think, I think it's prudent that we take the time to get it right. You have been here a few years. I read that you were the first employee of the spaceship company. Yeah, so I joined uh, the Virgin Galactic program almost 10 years ago uh, back in London. Really, my early focus was supporting the development program at Scale Composites and then working on the business plan for the spaceship company. So um, my wife Nadia and I moved to the desert in uh, uh, November 2008. That was really the kickoff, uh, you know, be the client and the kickoff the flight test program at scale with, you know, White Knight 2 flew a month month later and then start building out the the spaceship company. Are many... Enthusiastic listeners in Australia, I'm sure, are loving your accent. You were from Perth? I'm from Perth, Australia, correct. So here via London, the Mojave is not London. No, you could say it was, you know, culture shock. It wasn't, it wasn't. I, I'd, I'd been visiting Mojave for a couple of years and, and uh, knew, knew where I was moving to. Uh, so f- fully vested uh, in that move and, 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 and no regrets. And, uh, you know, the Mojave Desert is, is a remarkable place. You can, you know, like I say to, to new employees that join us, you can either look at it as the middle of nowhere or, or the middle of everywhere. And it's, <laughs> if you choose the latter, you'll have a great time and, uh, and, and, and leverage the beautiful assets out here in terms of national parks and things like that. And sort of know that you're part of this heritage that has got on for many years now in the desert in developing cool and innovative aerospace vehicles. I don't have to be convinced. I've had the best time every time I've come out here. You obviously, this is something you wanted to do with your life. It is lifelong passion uh, for space, uh, human space flight. So it was one of the reasons, uh, well, actually the reason we left uh, Australia uh, was to uh, look at opportunities to get to get involved uh, in, in sort of the, the commercial space industry that was starting up at the time. And Virgin seems to be a special sort of place to do anything, you know, whether you're making records or cola or building spaceships. Yeah, it is. You know, Richard and, and the leadership team in, in corporate have, I think, done a great job defining our brand values and and, and approach to business. And, and it's exciting to apply that uh, in, in aerospace. Enrico, really all I can do now is say that I sure look forward to coming back and knowing that free flights VSS Unity flying on its own may not be too far off if things go well. I sure hope I, I can see you again soon. Yeah, we'd love to have you out here. You know, we, uh, we don't publicize our flight test dates because they're flight tests, but, uh, you know, we'll uh, hopefully be in the air soon. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. I uh, have to make the long trip back into uh, the city now, but I'm going to miss being in the Mojave in spite of the 80-mile-an-hour winds last night. <laughs> yeah, safe travels. It's, uh, we've, we've actually had a great summer here in the desert, and overnight it's, it's got windy. It's, uh, we've, uh, but anyway, that, that's uh, why those windmills are here. But anyway, safe travels, and glad I could show you around.
Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. The Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society joins us once again. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. Hey, I saw, with your warning, Venus and the Moon very close to each other last week, and I wasn't frightened because you'd prepared me. <laughs> I kind of viewed it as just a pretty thing. But yeah, I guess it could be terrifying, so I'm glad you were prepared. You never know what the skies have in store for us. <laughs> but but you're going to tell us again. Actually, we usually do. <laughs> I mean, there are things like meteors that we don't, but... We're working on it. it. We're working on it. Uh, yeah, in the night sky, as Matt said, Venus is the super bright object, star-like object over in the west soon after sunset. There are other planets lined up with it, but they're tougher to see if you go to Venus's lower right there is Saturn, which is quite low to the horizon, and uh, Venus's far to its upper left is reddish Mars. In the pre-dawn sky, we've got super bright Jupiter low in the east before dawn. Those are, that's, that's all. <laughs> Those are the easy things to check out. Apparently, it's not easy to speak, but it's easy to see. We move on to this week in space history. 1934, Planetary Society co-founder Carl Sagan was born. Oh, that's great. And 1971, Mariner 9 became the first Mars orbiter. And we started to learn that Mars wasn't quite such a nasty place after all, right? We did, at least that it had all sorts of interesting geology that we didn't know from the first flyby missions. But first, we had to wait for a uh, global dust storm to calm down. Those are spectacular. All right, we're ready to go on. Random space the first recorded supernova likely was recorded almost 2,000 years ago. SN-185 was recorded in 185 AD by Chinese astronomers who said a strange star appeared in what we now call the constellation Centaurus and was visible for about eight months. Supernovas, the end state of massive stars, can outshine an entire galaxy at their peak brightness. So I take it that we can still see something there? Is there like, uh, you know, a cloud of gas there now or something? They, they think they've found uh, a remnant uh, of it, yes. So they, they think so. It's a little, a little dicier from the descriptions that long ago. But yes, it's Great. not as obvious as the Crab Nebula from uh, SN1054. We're ready to go on. We were thinking New Horizons. I asked you what science instruments on the New Horizons spacecraft have the names of characters from the TV show The Honeymooners. How'd we do, Matt? <laughs> we did well. Let me let the central character in that uh, old classic television show uh, provide part of the answer. Bang! Shoot! I'm going to the moon! That was Ralph Cramden. <laughs> and just for those of you who aren't aware, he never did hit Alice. In fact, Alice was the far superior character. She was, she was much smarter than either Ralph or his crony Norton, and uh, usually had the upper hand. And <laughs> just but had he, to put, put up with this guy. But he clearly was interested in astronomy and space exploration. Yeah, abs clearly, yes. <laughs> so, so yes, the instruments, Alice and Ralph. It was Scott Schleeper who got chosen by Random.org this time around. Scott won almost to the day two years ago. It was the last time he won the contest. He did say Ralph and Alice, named for the Cramdens on the 1950s television series The Honeymooners. Came back in the 60s. There was a remake, I think, in the early 2000s. Of course, the Flintstones. <laughs> largely, largely You know, based. we should make a remake. I call Ralph. <laughs> 
oh, I, no problem. I would absolutely want to be Norton. Hey, Ruffy, Ruffy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to shake hands with Norton. I won't explain why. We got other great entries. Hudson Ansley uh, said, uh, bang, zoom to the moon, Alice, which was the famous Ralph Cramden quote. He points out, though, that, of course, in this case, the moon would be Sharon. <laughs> John Harrison, he never thought my dad making me watch Honeymooners reruns would come in handy someday. <laughs> From Setapong in Jamaica, New York, this is the longest Honeymooner episode ever. <laughs> and finally, this from Dustin Berg in Richlands, North Dakota. The distance from HN Pegasi to our solar system is about 60 years, meaning the potential residents of any Earth-like planets or otherwise in that system could be enjoying the Honeymooners right now. <laughs> Scott Sleeper is going to get that prize package of a Planetary Radio t-shirt, a Planetary Society rubber asteroid, and a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account from that worldwide network, nonprofit network of telescopes around the world that you can uh, use to point at stuff like uh, the Crab Nebula or Venus, for that matter, I assume. I, and we're going to give away that same package again this week uh, to whomever answers this next question from Bruce correctly and gets chosen by random.org. All right, back to supernova. What supernova did famous astronomer Tycho Brahe observe? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 15th, that would be November 15 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. Good luck, everybody. And uh, good luck to you, Bruce. And good luck to you, Norton. <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about why cheese comes in different colors. Thank you, and good night. Green cheese, that's what Alice would have found, of course. Uh, that's Bruce Betts. He's the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who joins us each week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its courageous members. Daniel Gunn is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.